For several months now, I've had on my mind January, the month of January, and topics for our study time together. The topic of truth is what I've been thinking about, Christians and truth. Discerning, valuing, living, cherishing, enjoying, practicing truth. In the last few weeks, I sensed a need for more voices, more insight, some help with this topic, and so we invited some guests to guide our conversation about truth. Three friends of our community who are also professors of religion, and I'm so grateful and also eager to learn. This was the plan, and then this week happened in our nation. This week, Wednesday. When a nation struggles practicing truth, it looks like this week in America. And our hearts and our minds and our souls, they ache with emotion and we reach for a reason. We'll stay with our plans. We'll press together now, seeking truth. The Holy Spirit has something for us, friends. So I invite you, find a generous and a, a humble posture and an open and available heart. How do we resolve questions of truth? Why are untruths so compelling? Why do we and how do we contribute to a culture of truth or lies? What is the sin of certainty within the church? Where is Jesus in our pattern of truth-telling? What kind of practicing community are we? How do we resolve questions of truth in a create-your-own world? Today, we welcome Dr. Zane Yi, Associate Professor and Associate Dean at the School of Religion at Loma Linda University, our sister campus. We know Zane, Angela, and Ava, though, as members here for several years and forever friends of our congregation. I invite you to reach for your Bible now and open John chapter 1 as our friend Zane gives us our teaching today. Listen for a word from God in the Gospel of John chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thanks be to God for this word. Well, good morning, La Sierra family. It is good to reconnect with you in this strange and virtual way. You know, a few years ago, this was our first church when we moved back to Southern California, and my daughter was dedicated here. Uh, she's six years old now, and I'm so glad to be here worshiping with you this morning. Wish you a happy new year. And uh, one week in, what a year it is already. Pastor Chris has already mentioned some of the things that have already gone on. Um, but I know, like uh, you, I've been watching the news. Uh, you know, I was born in the state of Georgia. So earlier on, on Wednesday, uh, I was checking out the news feed every few minutes. And then Wednesday afternoon. Here's a quote describing what happened. We currently witness an attack on the very fundamental fundaments of democratic structures and institutions. 
These are the words of Peter Bayer, the German government's coordinator for transatlantic affairs, commenting on what we witnessed here in America on Wednesday, a mob violently storming Capitol Hill. Quote, these are not merely a U.S. national issue, but it shakes the world, at least all democracies. The New York Times article where he is quoted goes on to report, one by one, officials around the globe responded with a sort of statements previously issued by the United States State Department when political violence consumed other countries. We're living through, it seems like, two global pandemics. Before all this, all eyes were on the climbing ICU numbers at area hospitals. The beds are full. Hospital staff are exhausted physically and emotionally. And families are grieving. And perhaps that strikes close home to you, describes your work week or what your family is going through. The vaccines are here, but there are challenges. In addition to the logistical challenge of getting them distributed, there's a significant, perhaps greater hurdle of winning the confidence of communities that, for good reason, have their reservations. It's overwhelming. The two pandemics we are witnessing, as different as they are, one political, the other you might say medical, are connected because they're connected to what we're going to be exploring here today and the next few weeks. It's the issue of truth. What are the facts? What is fantasy? Who can we trust? We live in a complicated times where simple answers are hard to find. We live in times that require courage, hope, and wisdom. And that's why we've gathered together for worship, isn't it? For that wisdom. As a faith community, we return and turn together to sit with scripture and listen for what the Spirit might have to say to us, to give us encouragement and perspective. So let's turn again to our text. The Gospel of John will be our focus the next few weeks. This book contains far more uses of the term truth, aletheia, than any other New Testament book. We start today at the beginning, John 1, which serves as the prologue to the book, laying out its main themes. And for the next few moments, I'd like to draw your attention to three of them. We see, first, that in a world cynical about the truth, John assures us that we have the capacity to understand truth. The context of the original audience that heard this gospel, as different as it is from us, is also in important ways very similar. It was a world of competing truth claims. There was the political truth perpetuated by the Roman propaganda machine. Rome, the city of eternal light, shines on the rest of the world of barbarian darkness. Now that you have been conquered, you are invited to join the empire. Accept our ways, pay your taxes, and enjoy the benefits of Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There are also claims to religious truth. God has given us Torah. We have the truth. We are the chosen ones. We are blessed. Everyone else, the goyim, the Gentiles, they live in darkness. Then, of course, there are the claims of the competing philosophical schools, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Cynics, each offering their distinct accounts of truth and ways of living it out. John seems to have all of these audiences in mind in addressing them 
he addresses us almost 2,000 years later as we try to live in our own world of competing and conflicting truths. You know, the opening of John gets read a lot during the Christmas season for obvious reasons. It seems to directly describe what believers celebrate, the birth of Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we read. Careful readers will note, however, there's more going on here. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, John tells us. The verb gives is in the present tense. And interestingly, just a few verses before that, in verse 5, John claims the light shines in the darkness. Again, the verb is in the present tense. Before Jesus was born, the word was already at work in the world, shining in the darkness and bringing enlightenment. How is this possible? Well, it helps to unpack the term word here used by John. Logos in the Greek was a technical term uh, with both philosophical and theological meanings. Greek philosophers used it to talk about the rational ordering of the cosmos. Logos was what brought structure, symmetry, and intelligibility to everything and was also present in humans as reason, which is actually another way you can translate the term. The logos in here recognizes the logos out there, and that's what makes truth an accurate understanding of reality possible, according to the philosophers. The term also had rich theological meaning. The term word would have been very similar to Jews in the audience too. The word of the Lord. The Hebrew scriptures associate this phrase with the creative power of God. In the beginning, God speaks the world into existence. Let there be light, and there was light, Genesis says. God's word is powerful, Isaiah says. It does not return empty and is the source of wisdom calling out to everyone in Proverbs. The word, that which gives existence, order, and ultimate meaning, that which is from God, with God, is God, is already and always at work. So wherever and whenever someone comes to understand the truth, it is because of the logos. We were created for truth. God created reality to be knowable and creatures within it to survive and thrive in it, being able to accurately perceive understand, and navigate it. You know, Justin Martyr, he's an early Christian philosopher, is trying to think through these ideas. He provocatively puts it this way. Quote, he is the reason, uh, he here is the word, of whom the whole human race partakes. And those who live according to reason are Christians, even though they are accounted atheists. The search for truth begins pretty early on. I told you about my daughter, Ava, who's now six. And parents, uh, six is fun, isn't it? She and I are starting to have uh, all kinds of conversations about various topics. Over the holidays, we actually started exploring a very important issue. It was a weekend morning, uh, a Sabbath morning, I think, and uh, we're gathered around the kitchen counter waiting for the waffles to get done. Daddy? She paused, looking quite serious. I have a question. Uh, yes? Is Santa real? What do you mean by real? I asked her. Things can be real in all kinds of ways. These are the kinds of responses you get when you have a philosopher as a parent. More questions, 
you know, real. Uh, like Elsa and Anna are real, I asked her. Elsa and Anna, and for those of you who don't know, these are frozen characters, <laughs> are not real, she informs me quite certainly. I have three major doubts about Santa, she continues and starts laying out her observations. Number one, there are already presents under the Christmas tree and it's not Christmas yet. You know, at this moment, uh, my heart fills with pride. My daughter is learning to think critically about the world. I'm also uh, panicking. What do I say next? Oh, look, I say, the waffles are done. Let's eat. That's right, I was saved by the bell. You know, we have been created to know the truth, and someone, uh, when, when someone seeks it, whether they are young or old, in all its forms, it's to be celebrated. If humans have the capacity to understand the truth, though, why is there so much confusion about it and disagreement? Well, it turns out that our capacity for truth is, in the end, limited. You could say that the text messages that are going out to the whole group are not being received by everyone, at least not completely. So the word, which is already at work, has to communicate more directly by showing up in a rather personal way in Jesus. But our collective responses, our response to him, reveal something about ourselves and our relationship to truth. And that truth is we have a complicated relationship with the truth. Humans have a capacity for truth, but it's limited. We're finite. When the, world be, uh, when the word becomes flesh, John tells us, people did not recognize the word. This lack of recognition was due to a variety of factors. It seems that in Jesus' case, one of the main issues was preconceptions and expectations that ran contrary to who Jesus actually was. People wanted a mighty military leader. So when a Messiah shows up preaching peace to the poor, he is not recognized as the Messiah. Imagine the couple meeting up for the first time after messaging and texting online. One walks, one walks past the other at the appointed time and place because they're imagining someone else. And sometimes the truth runs contrary to our assumptions and we need to adjust those assumptions. But the problem goes deeper. It's not just a lack of understanding, but of desire. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, John says. Did you catch that? It's not just a recognition issue, it's a reception issue. Jesus is not who we want. You know, we like to think of our desires being shaped by our thoughts, but more often, it's the other way around. Our receptivity to truth is shaped by our desires. I affirm it to be true because I want it to be true. I ignore or overlook relevant facts because I don't want it to be true. This dynamic between assumptions and desires has played out in my own life over the past few years in a rather personal way. Actually, it's been an ongoing point of conversation, um, and if I'm honest, tension in our family. According to the reports of some, I snore at night pretty heavily, disrupting the sleep of others. But you know, this is something that does not align with the assumptions I have of myself. I imagine myself sleeping rather quietly and peacefully at night. And I'm uncomfortable with the possibility of my body doing something I can't directly control. I don't want to be someone who snores at night. I don't want to be that guy. But according to a loved and trusted family member, my spouse, 
This is not the case. What is my response to this revelation? Well, let's say it's been a long journey to self-acceptance and truth. My immediate reaction, I'm a bit sheepish to admit, was one of defensiveness and denial. This simply could not be true. I was actually offended by the suggestion and quite upset at one point when a recording of my snoring was produced. You know, we're drawn to versions of the truth that align with our assumptions. We are drawn to versions of the truth that we want. Unfortunately, this means that the truth, how things actually are, ends up taking the back seat, and this can have some pretty corrosive consequences. It leads to distrust between people and in communities. It spreads and infects everything and everyone, and in the end, literally, it results in death. And we see this dynamic being played all around us, don't we? It turns out, though, that the dynamics we're witnessing are not entirely unique. You know, many, many years ago, the prophet Isaiah describes a situation in his day like this. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. John calls this darkness. So, we have the capacity for truth, but also resist and reject the truth. And this can lead to, and does lead to, a collective downward spiral. And here we are, 2021. Is there any hope? Is there a solution? Now, if John were a professor, he might suggest more education, better classes. If he were a politician, better policies, better laws. But John, as we know, is neither of these. He's a prophet. And according to him, we need divine help to grasp the truth. It turns out that what we are reading about in the news, believe it or not, is worse than we think. The battle for truth in our society is actually part of a much larger conflict. Our world has been taken captive by forces we cannot control. John depicts our situation as being part of a larger cosmic conflict. And in Revelation, another book attributed to John, a great dragon is depicted as being cast down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, John writes. Sigmund Tonstadt, in his new commentary on Revelation, argues that a suitable translation for devil is actually slanderer or mudslinger. Literally, it's someone who throws lies about others. Now, the book of Revelation uses a lot of vivid and symbolic imagery to communicate that the heart of this conflict, in the end, is about truth and lies, trust and distrust. It's the way it's been from the very beginning, where a lie is told and believed, which results in the breakdown of relationships, human and divine. And the breakdown of relationships, if you follow the narrative, goes long and deep. It's a story of the human race, and we find ourselves collectively caught up in a knotted web of disinformation, deceit, and distrust. And the darkness that surrounds us becomes the darkness inside of us. So, it's even worse than we think. And if we stopped here, we'd have the truth about our situation, but not much hope. But thankfully, John gives us even more truth. All is not lost, 
because God has gotten involved in the human situation and through this involvement has revealed more light. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Did you catch it? What does Jesus ultimately reveal? Grace and truth. Not just truth, but grace and truth. They come together. And it's the experience of grace that makes the genuine pursuit of truth possible. I think we get it backwards sometimes. We think we have to grasp the truth in order to receive the grace. And paradoxically, this actually gets in the way of growing in our understanding of truth. I see this with so many of my students when it comes to their studies. The pressure of performing perfectly on the test gets in the way of actual learning. There's just too much writing on having the correct answers. I have to perform to get the degree, to get the job. I have to get the job to earn my place in society. I can't afford to be wrong. But that's not how things work in God's economy, is it? Jesus came to show us God's absolute commitment and faithfulness to humanity, which I'm a part of, which you're a part of, in spite of not having all the answers, in spite of not having the right answers. That's grace. And it's experiencing the security and safety of God's faithful mercy that makes me open to learning new things. Grace opens me up to deeper truths about myself, about God, about the world in which I live. And as I grow to trust God and the depth of God's love, I grow in confidence and freedom to genuinely be curious, to be wrong, to even make mistakes, to come to more truth. Okay, third point, and I'll make this quick. Not only do we need God's grace, we need the truth in the ultimate sense, the truth about God. Beyond revealing the depth and width and length of God's grace, Jesus reveals the truth about God. God can be trusted. God fulfills God's promises. God does not deceive. God is consistent. And this inspires God's people to do and to be the same, to walk with integrity, to show mercy, and to speak truthfully. In a dark world of distrust, we seek to reflect and refract the light and become people others can trust. So yes, let's explore and implement the best solutions we can think of when it comes to education, politics, social media, and public health to address the very real challenges we face. But let's do so being filled with God's spirit, reminding the world of God's love. We are deeply loved despite not having all the answers. I've tried to draw your attention to some simple points from the text. But since our series is entitled Practicing Truth, can I suggest some practical principles as we enter this new year? First, you know, we've learned that we have the capacity to understand truth. I think this means that we're created for it and we should seek humbly and diligently to understand it. We should find and rely good, uh, on good sources, check our facts and reason critically and carefully even if we're tempted to take the easy way out and just passively consume what others post or say. Second, we've learned that we have a complicated relationship with the truth. Our understanding of truth is shaped and often warped by our assumptions and desires. We are caught up in larger systems that often hide and distort the truth. So we need to be self-aware, self-critical, 
and seek forgiveness for our participation and at times complicity in these systems. We need to seek change and accountability. Third, we need to recognize our dependence ultimately uh, on God and what God has revealed and done in Jesus, the Word made flesh. Through Jesus, God faithfully extends us grace before we have things figured out and forgives us of the mistakes we have made in ignorance. So we should seek to extend that same grace to others. 